Mark chapter number 14 in your Bibles. Mark chapter number 14. <clears throat> Continue our study in Mark's gospel this morning. I want to say thank you to Miss Charlotte. Miss Charlotte had had some surgery this week. Uh, she doesn't let a little thing like surgery keep her out of church. Uh, she just comes on, and I appreciate that. Uh, and playing the organ this morning, thank you so much. I know Eddie and some others in the church family are struggling with some illnesses and different things, and we certainly miss them <clears throat> this morning. Mark chapter number 14. Caleb read the passages that we'll consider this morning, verses 26 through 42. We'll not make our way all the way through all of these passages, but the title of the message this morning is Glory in the Garden. <clears throat> Glory in the Garden. <clears throat> this morning we, we come to some of the most sobering portions of Scripture in all the New Testament. As we embark upon these next few Sunday mornings leading up to Easter, um, the we, I think some of the most sobering and, and, and passages that we could possibly read Jesus has now spent some time uh, here in Jerusalem. He's now spent a number of days. And uh, these, during this time, since his triumphal entry, he's had the confrontation often with the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And we've been noting that. And that confrontation will continue to go forth. On another side of that, Jesus is literally at the apex of his uh, popularity with the common people as everywhere he goes there's a crowd that's gathering around and with him <clears throat> this crowd who's come to celebrate the Passover and his popularity is unprecedented at this point in time but we begin to see and we'll see very quickly in the days to come how quick that begins to change you can go from a hero to a zero very quickly in the eyes of people but we now come to the time when, and all of this, as I mentioned, is literally about to turn. Everything Jesus, although he's been confronted, although he's been uh, dealing with those who hated him and those who were uh, seeking to take his life, yet he still had that element of, uh, of popularity again among the people, but everything was about to change. Everything was about to take a turn in a dreadful, if you will, direction. The events of these next hours that we look at here in this passage of the, really the night that's before our Lord, they would prove to be, I believe, some of the darkest hours in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Some of the darkest hours. Although we sometimes read these passages and we can read them at Easter time and oftentimes we do and maybe we're reading through our Bible scriptures on a regular basis and we come to these passages and if we're not careful, I believe that we can quickly read over and our minds do not fully grasp and comprehend all that's taking place in this scene here in the passages of the Bible. Things can move so quickly and we read, as we read, that we, if we're not careful, we can miss the significance of the words that's being used, the things that we read. Uh, the word, uh, the, such as the word Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Uh, the, the idea and the word, the meaning behind that is olive press or the pressing, the crushing, if you will. Uh, we can skip over the words like betrayed, the cup, hands of sinners. Words like exceedingly sorrowful. Uh, 
death, that word is used in this passage, pray. Uh, we can skip over that. Watch. We skip over that. Uh, temptation. We can easily just read these words as they're just on a page, but they oftentimes do not leap out and grab our attention. And I trust that this morning they certainly would. All of these are used, these words and others are used to describe what's about to take place there in that Garden of Gethsemane. During the 33 years of the life of Christ, He has been exposed to many trials, many temptations, many difficulties. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 3, tremendous passage of Scripture. The Bible calls Jesus a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I do not think there is a time in the New Testament where we're told that Jesus laughed. Although I do believe that he did. I do believe that Jesus certainly did laugh. As Christians, we ought to be people of joy. I think it's, in, it's fun to laugh, amen? Uh, it's fun to laugh at you, and it's okay when you laugh at me. I don't think Jesus laughed at the expense of people, though. I do believe that there are certainly times when Jesus laughed. I think there were times when he rejoiced and was exceedingly happy. I believe that Jesus had a constant peace in his heart and it came up out of his heart and it was expressed on his face. I believe Jesus smiled everywhere he went. I believe the smile of Jesus was infectious. You ever been around somebody like that? You get around somebody like that today and somebody automatically asks the question, what's wrong with you? I believe Jesus was the kind of fellow that everywhere he went, It was an infectious smile. It was constantly upon his face. Our Lord was not a long-faced, downcast, disheartened individual. And let me say, as Christians, we ought not be either. We ought not be either. Everywhere that Jesus went, he brought with him, I believe, the joy of the Lord. The crowds were drawn to him. Children desired to be held by him. The countenance of our Lord was inviting, it was intriguing. I believe it was loving. And because of that, people again were drawn to him. And this ought to be the case in the life of every Christian. But being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as we're told out of Isaiah's passages, and we look at this passage this morning, and we certainly see the sorrows and the grief. And all of this, the life of Jesus, uh, certainly if anybody knew what it was To hurt, Jesus did. If anybody knew what it was to be in pain, Jesus certainly did. If anybody knew what it was to be grieved over sin, Jesus did. If anybody knew what it was to have a family member or someone uh, that was close to you that would literally break your heart, Jesus did. His heart was broken. We're told in the passages In the scriptures, in the New Testament, in the gospels, his heart was broken, moved with compassion when he saw the crowds of people. For Jesus, just to walk out and see a crowd of people, he saw the needs. How many times do we walk out into crowds and see needs? See people are hurting. Oh, we can see those who are quickly, who would disagree with us politically. 
those who would disagree with the way that we look. And we think they ought to look a different way. But do we often see the needs? Jesus did. Jesus saw the needs and he had compassion. He began to minister. The Bible tells us that he wept with those who wept. Many times the Bible tells us that his heart was troubled. He knew heartache over being rejected. Having people turn his back upon him. That of his friends and that of his closest acquaintances. But all the sorrows and the griefs of Jesus and all that he'd ever known up to this point and all that he'd ever felt up to this point was about to be eclipsed with what was about to take place here in this Garden of Gethsemane. Here in these passages, we begin a journey to the cross, if you will, through the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where it starts. It really starts when he comes into this old planet and born as a babe in a manger. But we see the hour, the specific hour, the hour for which Jesus has come. It begins here in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, it's a journey through the, through the garden to the cross. Leonard Ravenhill, the old evangelist, revivalist from years ago said, Gethsemane is where he died. The cross is the evidence of it. I think as we look through these passages, we'll certainly see that to be the case as we move forward. It was in the Garden of Eden, as we think about our Bibles, we go all the way back to the book of Genesis. It was in the Garden of Eden, another garden that sin and Satan set out to destroy mankind. And it's here in the garden, another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, that Jesus sets out to deliver mankind. I want us to take a look into the garden this morning, this garden of Gethsemane, and see Jesus as he journeys his way to the cross. As we do this this morning, I want us to see, first of all, and I'll give you a series of S's if you're taking notes this morning. Out of verse number 26, before he gets into the cross, I want us to see the singing of Jesus. Look with me at verse number 26 of chapter number 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Here we know the story. The Passover meal had ended. The new and living way had been established. The inception of the Lord's table had now taken place. We saw this last week as our study through Mark chapter number 14. The Lord is partaking of the the Passover meal, but he, he brings forth the understanding of his body and his blood. He brings forth the understanding of that new and living way that would come only by and through him. Jesus had just told of his betrayal here in that upper chamber at that table. He had told his disciples of the betrayal. He had told them of his body that would be broken. He had told them of his blood that would be shed. One might think after hearing all this, and and you can go back and read the Gospel of John chapter number uh, 17 and 18, and it'll give you some more insight and understanding what took place and the things that Jesus was teaching his disciples. But one might think after hearing and understanding all of this, they would have walked out of that room uh, depressed. They would have walked out of that room in a downward note. But look what verse 26 says. When they'd sung a hymn. When they'd sung a hymn. The Bible says that Jesus sang a hymn. You ever thought about Jesus singing? 
Has that ever given you, you ever given any thought to the fact of Jesus singing? I wonder what his voice was like. I wonder what he sounded like. I, I, I don't know, but I, I, I like to just think, it's just me, I like to think he had a big baritone voice. I remember Brother Robert Regal singing at church at one foundation from this pulpit right here one evening. And as he was playing, as he was singing, Brother White, you may have been playing the piano for him that evening. As he was singing, the church is one foundation. It was sitting back here. It was like this entire platform was just sitting up here vibrating. It was tremendous. It was wonderful. I don't know what Jesus sounds like. Don't know what he sounded like, but I, I got to just believe that maybe that was the case. I love the fact that Jesus lifted up his voice in song. You know, he could have sung to himself about himself, and that'd have been okay. He's God. Sung to himself about himself, and that would have been okay because he is God. But I think he sang praises, and I, I, I know that he sang praises to his Father in heaven. He sang praises to his Father in heaven. You know, if Jesus sang to the Lord, shouldn't we sing also? If Jesus sang to the Lord, shouldn't we sing also? Every Christian, let me just say it again, every Christian ought to sing. You ought to sing. I wonder why some don't. I wonder why some seemingly can't, it seems. Sing of the Lord. The Bible tells us to enter into his gates with praise, with thanksgiving. Enter in. Uh, when we come to worship the Lord, part of our worship is singing. Forget about the individual beside you. Remember the one who died for you. Sing as unto the Lord. Sing with praise. Jesus sang with his voice, and I believe it came from his heart. God anticipates, and I believe God even expects his children to sing praises unto him. We ought to be people that sing. Let me invite you to join the choir. Come sing praises. Let me invite you to, to enter in when the congregation is singing. To begin to sing along with others. When you get to heaven, guess what you're going to be doing? You're going to be singing. Oh, let this be the choir practice for heaven. Let this be the place where we begin and begin now singing the Lord. When the Jews would finish this Passover meal, they would sing the Psalms. It was characteristic for them to sing what was called the Hallel. The word is Hebrew for praise. It would be found in the psalm. One of those psalms would have been maybe the last one they would have sung would have been Psalm 118. I wonder what Jesus sang. Maybe it was this. Psalm 118 verses 1 through 6. They begin to sing and they put it, uh, their voices and they open their voices and their hearts to the Father in heaven. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let him now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in distress and the Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what men can do unto me. I believe Jesus Saying those words. We look at verses 14 and following of the same Psalm 118. 
The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord, the gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art, my, art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. Understand, this is speaking of Jesus. Jesus is singing about himself. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Can you imagine Jesus? I like to think that Jesus and those disciples, they came out of the upper room singing. And maybe if they were steps, they went down those steps and they were singing. And they went out into the streets and they were singing. Wonderful is the Lord. This is the day Lord hath made where we will rejoice in it. Spurgeon said, Satan tries to make God's people dumb so that they cannot sing. So that they will not sing. But he cannot. For the Lord has not a tongue-tied child in all of his family. Surely when Jesus leads the tune. If there should be any silent ones in the Lord's family. They must begin to praise the name of the Lord. I think that's good. Jesus and his disciples, they leave that upper chamber of Jerusalem. And they head east out into the Mount of Olives. There's, first of all, singing. I want you to notice, not only do we see singing in this passage, but I want you to see that we see the scattering. Verse number 27. As they go out, as they're singing, as they go into the Mount of Olives, and Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep, Shall be scattered. Jesus quotes Zechariah 13 and 7 in this particular passage of Scripture. It is written, that's where it was written, and Jesus brings it to their attention. This night there will be a scattering. Jesus never got away from that joy that was set before him. But yet he tells his disciples, that there'll be a scattering. Those disciples will be scattered. They'll be sent away. Jesus gives words of assurance. He says in verse 28, But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. Here, the completion of these words, the completion of the things. He said this shepherd will be smitten. The sheep will be scattered. But he tells them that he'll be reunited again with them. And Peter, after hearing these words, Peter, after hearing what Jesus says, he comes back with a typical Peter response in verse 29 through 31. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will I not. Will not I, rather? And Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. 
But he spake the more vehemently. If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. Peter had been warned about earlier about his um, defection. At least in the beginning here at this particular passage. Jesus had said to them. In the Gospel of Luke, when they were in that upper room, Jesus said to them in Luke chapter 22 and verses 31 through 33, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. He said, I prayed that Satan would not have you. He said, understand, Peter, that Satan has desired to sift you. Peter had been warned that he would be scattered. And Peter comes back in pride and says, No, no, never me, Lord. No, not me. Here we see, I believe, the beginning. And it's really all through the passage. But here we see the beginning of spiritual warfare in Peter's life. Spiritual warfare. It's in the life of them all. Because it says, Likewise, they all said the same thing out of verse number 31. We'll not do this. We'll not do this. We'll, we'll not do as you say, Lord. We'll not depart. We'll not be scattered. We'll not be scandalized from you. The same desire. I want us to understand that Satan had a desire to sift him. And the same desire that Satan has and he had against Peter is the same desire that he has against you. And he has against me. To sift. The idea of sifting there is to shake, to agitate. To shake, to agitate our lives. Satan has desired this for you, for your life. None of us are exempt from this kind of thing. The Bible tells us that he's the accuser of the brethren. Satan will do all that he can to destroy your life. He'll do all that he can to destroy your family. He'll do all that he can to destroy your children. He'll do all that he can to destroy your marriage. Satan is a liar and he's a deceiver. Don't give him the upper hand. Don't give him a place in your life. He'll do all that he can to destroy. Many of us could sit here tonight and we could maybe hearken back to a time in our lives when Satan was destroying our lives. And then, praise God, we came to know Jesus. Maybe we know others that are acquaintances or people that we know in our families where literally we watch from afar and we wish we could intervene, but we watch from afar and we see that Satan is destroying. And by the way, we can intervene through prayer. We can intervene through God's Word. Satan's desire to have you. He will lie to you. He'll wreck your life. He'll ruin your future. He'll drag you to hell. The greatest, I believe the greatest, one of the greatest footholds that we give the devil to sift our lives is the foothold of pride. The foothold of pride. We literally give the devil that foothold in our lives. Paul, as Peter and his pride in these other disciples, they were filled with pride. Vehemently he, he denies, vehemently he argues with the Lord. The devil loves it. When we, in our pride, we argue with the written word of God. Our brother Edwards preaching this week, 
he was commenting on a, some areas in this particular passage and he made reference and he made note to the fact that he was literally arguing with the living word, Jesus Christ. And when we argue, we argue with God about what he says about us. We argue with God about our lives. We argue with God about our futures. We argue with God about what is right and what is wrong. We're literally arguing with the word of God. We're arguing with with the written word of God. And the devil loves it when we do this. Pride will vehemently argue with God. The devil will exploit you and drag you down when you get self-confident and leave God out of your lives. When we begin to get self-confident, I don't need to attend church. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to pray. I'm good. I've got it all figured out. I'm in a good spot right now. Everything is okay with me. That is the time and that is the place that Satan would love to come in and exploit your life. And seek to destroy it. We get self-confident like that. Pride. Self-righteousness. All still a part of pride. Self-confidence. Self-reliance. Pride is the tools that Satan will use to destroy us. The Bible says that pride goeth before a fall. Proverbs 11 and 2. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. Don't give the devil the foothold of pride in your life. Don't give him the foothold of pride. Some will sit in church this morning and know that you're lost. Or hearing by the way of live stream this morning and know that you're lost. Cannot give a Bible reason if you were to die today. Why you know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. And you'll sit in that and you'll say no. And you'll say no to pride. Pride will cause you to say no to the Lord. And you'll sit out here and listen. Hear the gospel and walk out of this place. And still be in the same condition. Pride is the tool that Satan will use to drag a man to hell. Pride is the tool that we give as a foothold to ruin our lives. Here we see pride, the life of Peter, the life of the disciples. We see the singing. We see the scattering. And now verses 32 through 34. I want us to turn our attention, of course, to the Lord again. I want us to see the suffering. Verses 32 through 34. And they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And we had taken with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went a little forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. I want us to see the suffering out of these verses. The full weight, the full weight of what was ahead now begins to bear upon the mind and the heart and the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he was sore amazed. It was very heavy within his heart, exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. I've heard people say it, the pain was so bad, I I prayed to die. Jesus was not praying to die. But the pain, the heartache, and the agony was so great, was so great that he thought it might be that which would take his life. Jesus 
here enters into, I believe, his darkest hours. Here in Gethsemane, Jesus gets a full view of Calvary and all that's involved. As the spotless, sinless Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world, his hour had come. This cup that's mentioned here in these passages, this bitter wrath of God against sin. Jesus is on the verge, he's on the outset of, of drinking it all, of drinking it completely and fully. He would receive all the wrath of God upon him. We see the soul of Jesus, the man. Here we see the humanity of Jesus like never before. Understand that as a man, he went every place that we thought we've ever been. He's gone further than we've ever thought that we have been. Some said, this is too much. This is too, too much. I can't go any further. God's put on me more than I can bear. Understand the scriptures. Another portion in the gospel says that Jesus went a little further. He left his disciples here and he went a little further. Anywhere we have ever been, understand that Jesus, in every case and in every circumstance, has gone on a little further than where we are. No man ever suffered like him. No man ever went through the things that he went through. And here in Gethsemane, Jesus, he sees the full picture. Not that he hasn't done so already. He's God. He understands the purpose for his coming. But here it's literally right upon him. The sin of the world, the sin of all mankind is now ready to be placed upon him. He's sore amazed, very heavenly, heavenly exceedingly sorrowful unto death. This is the agony of Jesus in the garden. Luke says sorrow. He says his sorrow. Uh, it talks about exceeding even unto death. That's the degree of it. We see in this passage the sorrow. But notice it's the agony of the soul. We've already mentioned that. The agony of the soul. The things that were going on in his heart and his mind. But we see not only the agony of the soul here in these passages, but we see the agony of the body. The agony of the body. Luke 22 and verse number 44. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The agony upon his body, the agony that was on the inside was now being expressed upon that which is on the outside. His visage, his entire body. The Bible tells us that his sweat became as great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jonathan Edwards on this particular passage said, It must be an extraordinary grief and an exercise of mind that causes the body to be all of a sweat in the cool open air of Gethsemane. Understand that that same night the servants and the officers would build a fire to warm themselves by. And Peter, we would see later on, would also there be with them to warm himself. But in the agony and the anguish in the heart and mind of Christ was so unspeakably extreme as to force his blood through the pores of his skin that so plentifully as that they would fall in great drops, great clots upon the ground from his body. Can we imagine what Jesus was going through? The agony that was in his soul that was coming out literally in his body. This agony was dreadful upon our Lord. But understand it was just a foretaste of what was to come. 
It was just a foretaste of what was yet to come. Soon he would be nailed to a cross with the sin of the world placed upon his body and the full wrath of God being poured out against that sin that was placed upon him. We see the suffering. Notice what Jesus did in this suffering. We see the supplication. Verses 35 and 36. And he went a little forward and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Abba, Father. Uh, This is a term that literally means daddy. Daddy, Papa, Papa, Daddy, if it's, all, if it's in any way possible, Lord, you're able to do all things. If it's possible, may this cup pass from me. Jesus, understand when he's praying this prayer, he's not fearful of the death. Jesus is not fearful of death. He knew that he would die and he knew that he would rise again. He's not fearful of death. He's not fearful as he stands here and as he's praying this prayer. He's not fearful of Pilate. He's not fearful of the beatings. He's not fearful of the the crown of thorns that we platted upon his head. He's not fearful of the, the spitting. He's not fearful of the physical pain that he would go through. He's not fearful of the shame that he would go through. Jesus here, I believe he's recoils from the wrath of Almighty God against sin. The wrath of Almighty God against sin. For the first time, the holy, spotless Lamb of God, infinitely pure in every essence and in every degree, He would now become so vile and unclean with the sin of the world, not His own sin, but our sin, your sin and my sin. He would become so unclean from this that His heavenly Father, the one, His Abba Father, His Papa, His Daddy, the one He had been so close to, that His Father would then now have to turn his back because he could no longer look upon sin. This was the agony of Jesus. This was the agony of Gethsemane. The death of Christ was never in doubt. But here we see the awfulness of sin that's exposed. The awfulness of sin that's exposed. And sometimes we can go through life and we can, oh, well, that's just a little sin. A little white lie. A little this or a little that. A little fudge here, a little fudge there. Nobody will know. As a matter of fact, everybody does it. Every sin was placed upon Jesus. Every sin. We see the suffering. We see the supplication. I want us to know this. What a blessing this is. Notice the surrender. Verse 36, the latter part. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Here we see the surrender. Nevertheless, even though I'm going through this, and even though all this is taking place, nevertheless, we see the surrender of God. It was said earlier that Jesus died in the garden and the cross was the evidence of his death. And I believe here is the the place where Jesus surrendered. Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Jesus was willing to go to the cross. In this surrender, we see the choice that was made. The choice that was made, complete submissiveness. 
Complete submissiveness to the Father. We see the price that was paid. He, he drank the entire cup. He drank the cup of the wrath, the judicial wrath of God. We see a way was proven. A way was proven. You could say provided for. He asked the Lord, All things are possible unto thee. Take this cup away. He says in verse number 33, that if it were possible, if it were possible, that's an interesting statement. If, it were pos- if there is another way, Heavenly Father, would you allow that to take place? You know what, Jesus, you know what the Heavenly Father comes back to Jesus with? There is no other way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. There is no other way. Here we find a proven, a provided way in Jesus Christ. If it were possible. But there is no other way. If you're going to go to God's heaven, you're going to have to go to God's heaven God's way. Not the religious way. Not the church membership way. Not the name on a roll way. Not the good works way. But you'll have to go Jesus' way. The death, the burial, and the resurrection for you. The acceptance of His His life, His giving of His life, so that you may have life. That new and living way. The choice was made in submission. The price was paid. The way was proven. And I want us to understand this as we close. The love was expressed. When Jesus surrendered right here at this point, there was a love that was expressed that could not be expressed in any other way, in no greater fashion, in no greater form. Jesus says, and he looks at my life, and he looks at your life, and he knows us better than we know ourselves, and he says, I love them. I love them. I love you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here at this submission, here in this agony, Jesus literally says, I love you with an everlasting love. A love that will not let you go. Love is expressed. Gethsemane, it was called the place of crushing. Stands as witness. I want us to understand, every time we understand, we, we come to the, the Garden of Gethsemane and we sing the songs and we, we look at it and we see it again and we hear it again, this idea of the Garden. I want us to understand it was a place where Jesus literally says, it's a witness that says loudly and clearly, I'm dying for you because I love you. This is the place. This is the Garden. The glory of the Garden. I wish we had time. There's so much more here. Maybe we'll come back and pick it up next Sunday morning. There's so much more to deal with. But we're out of time. I want to ask you this morning. Do you know Jesus? Not just do you know about him. Do you know him? Are you going through a hard time in your life? Are you going through a difficult time? Seem like life has turned its back and turned a hard turn. You've taken a hard turn in the wrong direction. Can I tell you that Jesus knows and Jesus cares? Can I remind you this morning that Jesus is the answer. He's the proven answer. He's the only answer. And would you do this morning as Jesus did to the Heavenly Father? Would you submit your will to Him? Would you submit your will to the Father? 
Would you give your life to Jesus Christ? Some need to do it by way of salvation. In just a moment, we're going to stand. If you're not sure if you're on your way to heaven this morning, you're not sure that you're on your way the Bible way, I invite you to come. Somebody will take a Bible and go out in a quiet place and spend just a few moments with you. Taking their Bible and helping you know for sure that heaven's your home. Maybe the person you're sitting beside might be the person you say, will you come with me? Can you show me what the Bible has to say? I'm not sure about this. Can you help me? And they'll come with you. Maybe they'll be the one that'll spend some time in the Bible with you. Dear Christian, you know you're saved. Maybe you're not living like you should. Maybe we've allowed some things to creep in and get in the way and, and, and cause our love for the Lord somehow to be a second kind of love. Can I invite you this morning? Come back to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Find him. Love him. Sing for him. Sing to him. Tell the whole world about him. Jesus saves. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we come to you this morning. I want to thank you for the glory of the garden. Lord, the things that we've seen this morning are so convicting. And well, Lord, I also say they're convicting, but they're also encouraging. Because I see... What you've done for me, not just for me as one individual, but you did this for the entire world. And your love is available if simply we would allow it. Lord, your love is there if we would simply accept it and receive it. And your offer of salvation is there. I pray for someone here that needs to be saved, today be the day of salvation. Maybe they've been in church their entire life, but never been really in Christ May the day be the day that they find Jesus. I pray for the Christian again. Burden our hearts. Help us to be the kind of individual we need to be in this whole world in which you've placed us. We might shine forth the glory of God. Thank you for what you'll do now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.